Good afternoon. Um, welcome to day four of the Ride Around the Murray Festival. Um, my name's Sally Denshire um, and I'm one of the members of the Ride Around the Murray Committee. Um, and I'm very excited to have you here to, to share this Self in the Story event. Um, I'd like to acknowledge that we gather here on Wiradjuri land and to honour Elders past, present and emerging. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome our three preeminent Australian authors to the stage, Caroline Baum, Jesse Cole and Robert Hillman. The Self in the Story author talk will be led by Caroline, who's a journalist, a broadcaster and the current reader in residence at the State Library of New South Wales. She also knows a bit about the process of including oneself in a book. Her memoir of life as a single child is called Only and was published last year. Please welcome Caroline, who will now introduce us to Jessie Cole and Robert Hillman. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. And um, it's really, really nice to be here on this sparkling day in this beautiful library. I've never been to this library before, but my God, you are lucky to have it. I'm having library envy. Not that I'm not happy at the State Library, but this is a very, very lovely library. Um, this is quite a sort of vexatious sort of subject that we're here to discuss today. I think that it's natural um, as a reader to be curious and wonder how much of themselves a writer has put into their fiction. It's as if, as a reader, we're sort of playing a game of hide-and-seek sometimes when we're reading fiction and trying to sort of tease out which elements of a writer they've kind of um, concealed in their fiction. Some of our most loved authors put bits of themselves quite visibly on the stage, and I'm sure you've all got a list, but just by way of example, Tim Winton, Richard Flanagan, Christus Tolkis, for example, Helen Garner, of course, but also Eleanor Ferrante, Karl Ovinausgaard, some of Tom Keneally, Anne Enright, Philip Roth, Jay McInerney, Isabella Allende, Rachel Cusk, who we were just talking about, some of Robert Drew, bits of Lionel Shriver, Alex Miller. You know, the list goes on and on. But I do know from interviewing a lot of authors at festivals that many writers are very prickly and sensitive and infuriated or insulted by the suggestion that they've put themselves in their fiction as if somehow that su suggests a deficiency of the imagination, which is not how I see it at all. I love the way a writer uses part of their lives and the creative part for me is in the disguise in the way you might borrow from an anecdote or an experience and then clothe it in a different era or setting of some kind. So today, we're going to be talking about that game of hide-and-seek with these two writers, who unusually have both written fiction and memoir in which elements from their own lives are both disguised and exposed. So... Jessie Cole has written two novels, Deeper Water and Darkness on the Edge of Town, and a memoir called Staying, which explores painful questions about loss and grief after family tragedy. She lives in the northern rivers of New South Wales. Robert Hillman is the author of several novels and has also ghosted several biographies, including Gurumul, about the great indigenous singer Geoffrey Gurumul Unipingu. 
His memoir, The Boy in the Green Suit, won the 2004 National Biography Award. His most recent novels are Joyful and The Bookshop of the Brokenhearted, which he's going to be talking about tomorrow. And um, he has moved back recently from where I thought he lived in the Yarra Valley to St Kilda. Will you please join me in welcoming them both? Um, let's just dive in here, Jesse. Um, in your novels, in, in both of your novels, there is an outsider who crashes into a small community. Uh, and in Darkness on the Edge of Town, there is a father, as one of the two sort of central figures and two narrators of the novel, who you describe as a father who rescues broken things. And I was wondering whether that was also, in a sense, what your own father was. Yeah, I've never thought about that before. You are My father me. is a psychiatrist, <laughs> but I had not noticed that. Um, yeah, I just, I guess I was just rereading a bit of that book this morning and thinking, um, oh my gosh, like I can't believe what, what this is. It, every t- it is the book that I've written that when I look at it again, I'm absolutely shocked by every aspect of it. I suppose you, you can explain that a little bit by saying, well, that was your first book, wasn't um, it? I think, it I, I think I can explain that by actually admitting that what really happened there was that, um, you know, I didn't know that I was a writer when I wrote that book and I, um, and I had a very confusing affair with a guy that I didn't have any way of resolving and I started writing from his voice um, as a way to manage my sort of emotional distress and the whole book came out like the easiest thing in the world Um, but I was not thinking for one moment about those correlations with my own experience so that one that book in particular is quite startling to look back on and see all those things I was looking at this morning and thinking oh my gosh it's like I wrote a book about a dad that is actually there you know like I mean between there's a the, the book involves a relationship between a dad and his teenage daughter, mm. and my dad, my dad in actual life, um, you know, kind of really just di- disappeared in such a spectacular way in that time period, and this dad is sort of, he's not doing great, but he's given it a good go, and I was really struck by how much, because I think about that a lot in fiction, how much I write to inhabit something I didn't get to inhabit, mm. um, and so... Yeah, so it's more like that. But, yeah, I've never thought about that. That is extraordinary. (laughs) We will tease that out a little bit more. I'm warning you now. (laughs) Uh, Robert, in your memoir, there is a defining image of being abandoned as a small boy by a mother who walks off wearing Mm -hmm. a red coat. And ever since that moment, it seems to me that colour in your fiction and in both your non-fiction is quite bright um, for example, in your memoir, you are a boy in a green suit. Not many boys yes. um, have a green suit, and certainly not many boys in a green suit go off and do what Robert did in that green suit. It is just the most mind-boggling adventure. Um, and I was just wondering about that image of abandonment and colour, whether you could talk about those as recurring themes. When it comes to the, comes to the colour, Carolyn... Uh, uh, I actually had never thought it never occurred to me before that the, the, the colour was 
so vivid in in, so uh, in, uh, in my prose. Um, Are you serious? <laughs> no, no, no. I just cannot believe that. I mean, Blind Freddy would notice this about your work. <laughs> Blind Freddy is a genius compared to <laughs> I suppose this, what this tells you a lot about is actually that authors very rarely reread their own work. So mm. it's up to the sort of moderators at festivals mm. to tell them what their books are about. <laughs> That's exactly exactly <laughs> what I'm relying on. <laughs> but uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the red uh, the red coat. Yes, it's my mother. When I was uh, five years old, we lived in a small country town in the centre of Victoria called, at the time it was called, uh, Eildon Weir. It's now mm. called just Eildon. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I was uh, uh, in a household with my my elder sister Marion, who was about ten years older than me. And uh, my mother and my father. One day, and, and children have no idea that this sort of thing is going on. I was five years old, and my mother was dressed as she would not normally be dressed uh, uh, at that time of the morning, at uh, nine o'clock in the morning, half past eight in the morning, in a beautiful red coat that I'd always loved, that red coat. I wondered why she was wearing it. Mm-hmm. I wondered why she was carrying a suitcase, mm. or she had a suitcase beside her. And... Uh, she wrote a note and left it on the, on the uh, mantelpiece. And uh, in all this bafflement, she said, today you go off to school by yourself. I don't take you to school today. You're going to go off by yourself. So I went off to school by myself, feeling this terrific sense of bafflement um, and, uh, and foreboding, foreboding. I thought something, in spite of not knowing terribly much as a five-year-old, I, I couldn't help but feel that something mm. was not right. When I came home, my mother was gone, and I didn't see her again for 27 years. Um, and uh, it was a uh, it was a, a, a deeply traumatizing thing for me. And I used various strategies to try and overcome the trauma, such as we might speak about uh, later about the the telephone, where I, I tried to talk to my mother on a telephone that didn't actually connect to anything. Um, uh, but uh, as for the as for the colour, the green suit, uh, people have pointed out to me. Well, you know, you were an extra, ex- even by the standards of the time, you were an extraordinarily stupid boy, and that, that's true. <laughs> no, you weren't a stupid boy. No, 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 that's not right. You were incredibly naive, and you had naive, this amazing yeah. fantasy life where you just assumed that your life was going to be such a an extraordinarily rich series of adventures in which you were going to be yes. a player. <laughs> I was going to be a player in this in this fabulous series of events. Uh, the green suit. Uh, when I set off for over, I was 16. When I saved up the money, and decided I wanted to see over, as I'm sure has happened to you, Caroline, and to you, Jesse. I wanted to see over the wall of life that, mm. that, that surrounds you. I wanted to climb a ladder and look over to the other side of the wall of life. And to do that, I needed to save a little bit of money, which I did, a one-way ticket to. Um, uh, to Salon, as it was called at that time, and uh, uh, set off for Salon with my typewriter. I carried my old lady typewriter with me because my ambition was to become a fabulous writer and also 50 novels, my favourite 50 novels, Insane. in a suitcase. Now, mo- most kids who travelled overseas, usually not at 16, at 18 or 19, these days and those days, would wear jeans and they would wear, uh, you know, a denim shirt, and they would carry a backpack. I thought, 
I wanted to look more sophisticated than that, so I bought this green suit. I dressed myself up in this complete green suit with a waistcoat and a tie and, um, um, a, uh, and, and a green jacket, of course, um, and uh, a suitcase carrying all this stuff in. Breathtakingly stupid. Um, and uh, set off to travel overseas. But the green, as has been pointed out to me, is uh, obviously, was said to me, well, obviously, Robert, the green symbolises the, the naivety of yourself as a child. And I thought, could well be right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to the way other people sort of see things in your work that you may not have seen yourself in a moment. Um, Jesse, one of the things that your, your um, biographical writing captures and conveys that you replicate or you use in your fiction is this sense of isolation in nature in a wonderful bush setting. So um, in both the novels, you've got an outsider who comes to a very remote home and is a kind of disruptive force Mm, mm. in that remote home. That is also how you grew up. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up Um, and how you grew up. Well, I still live in the house of my childhood, which mm. is in northern New South Wales, and it's uh, originally it was its pasture, but my parents built a garden that sort of has turned into a forest, and they built that when they first... Well, they planted it when they first bought the land. So it's not like the whole area is forest, but our house is forest, so it's its own little forest, and it even seems to have its own microclimate, you know, where it rains a lot just over our house. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and I, I hadn't also I hadn't noticed that both of my novels had this structure of the of the stranger. Um, someone else asked me about that last time I was here. Actually, and I was surprised, but I thought about it and I thought, well, if you've lived in the same house your whole life and you really haven't been out of, into the world much, there isn't really anything that could create drama in your life except a destructive stranger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, ap- apart from, like, the normal sort of family dramas or, you know, domestic dramas, but if you were talking about, like, a novel where there's a sort of climactic problem that needs to be solved... Well, except... For me... I mean, funnily enough, the problem would be the problem that Robert uses, which is, so you're in a hermetic space, family home, let's say, and someone could leave. Yes. So in, yes. in Robert's books, people leave. In yes. your books, people, people arrive. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I sort of like, well, and they arrive and they kind of move through and then they go, but they cause um, havoc. Havoc, and they cause the people who are like the, you know, the, the protagonists to to re-examine their existence. And I, I just feel like sort of I needed that disruption probably in my own life, but I didn't really know how to bring it in mm. because you know, Robert, with the theme of abandonment, for example. Um, in um, in the bookshop of the brokenhearted, you revisit the notion of abandonment that you've told us about in the boy in the green suit. But instead of us seeing it from the point of view of you, the child, you give us the point of view of the father, the Ooh. farmer who's by himself, yes. and the wife walks off, and suddenly he's kind of left. So it's as if you've kind of got a camera and you've shifted the focus from the boy that's you to the dad and I'm wondering whether at some stage you've thought about telling that story now perhaps from the point of view of the woman who leaves I, I hadn't thought of telling it from the point of view of the, of the woman who leaves um, the, the woman who leaves Trudy who is the, the wife of uh, Tom Hope the main major character um, when we first 
meet her, she's fairly shallow. And uh, she's got married on a whim uh, to a really, really nice, decent man, Tom Hope, who lives in, uh, in, in rural Victoria and is a farmer. And uh, he brings her back to the farm. She made a terrible mistake in marrying him. She's, she, she is a, a, a woman who needs the city. Mm. And um, uh, day after day after day of rain on the farm and Tom trying to, um, uh, to make the farm a, a, a workable um, uh, proposition, um, it, uh, it, and eventually after, after 20 months, it says at the start of the book, it says that she didn't stay for terribly long as far as marriages went, a year and 10 months. Mm. Uh, and so she leaves. And so it seems as if she's, um, uh, as if Trudy is, is rather shallow. But as the book goes on, she, her character deepens and deepens until finally she becomes the saviour of, almost the saviour of her, of her young son's life. Right. <clears throat> Coming back to, to you, Jesse, and this hermetic sort of um, world in the bush, I mean, one of the things that's very striking about that is certainly in your childhood, I think, an absence of technology, mm. that you were quite cut off from the world, which is quite useful in a way. For a novelist, yes. For a novelist. Yes. So yes. tell us a bit about that. Um, it's, just a, it's just a freak of geography, really, but w- that we don't have any mobile phone reception in our house. <laughs> I mean, you do get it, like, further up the valley and, you know, but just in our little forest we have none. And um, we also didn't have television reception and we, didn't, we couldn't get internet. So for a really long time um, we just had... It was like a little black hole technology-wise, which was interesting, I think, because it meant that the way... Um, for, for me, um, when technology finally came in, like when we could get a satellite and we could get... Wi-Fi and stuff, I was so aware of how much it had impacted me because it hadn't crept up incrementally the way I think it has for other people. Um, I, I think, I'm making a leap, that for other people it didn't come on so suddenly, this sort of incredibly sophisticated technology. So, yeah, I was really um, struck and sort of worried by how much it had impacted my um, pleasure in life, really, Mm -hmm. um, because I found... I mean, I'm over it now, I'm used to it, but, like, when I was writing that book, I was really thinking about it a lot, Deeper Water. Um, I had previously been in a a sort of relationship with my home place and with my um, environment that felt very reciprocal and very pleasurable, but once that degree of technology came in. I mean, I could actually spend hours just, like, not looking up from a screen, which I hadn't uh, ever done before. Um, And I found that my happiness really was impacted. Um, And I felt like maybe I was an unusual, you know, um, what's the word, like... Maybe there weren't that many of me who who got such a sudden mm. um, a sudden experience of technology impacting them, and was so therefore way more aware of what that would be like. Yeah. Do you think that that had an impact on your imagination and on and on your your belief in yourself as a writer? I mean, you know, people now are talking a lot about the impact of addiction, the impact mm. of distraction on the brain, on all of our kind of concentration yes. as readers. But what about for you as a writer? Yes. Um, I definitely think it impacts my writing practice because when I wrote my first couple of books, I didn't have Wi-Fi. I had, like, dial-up that was, you know, just connected to my PC and I didn't have any problem writing anywhere in my house because there was no... 
everywhere was free, whereas now um, there are only po pockets of my house where I, I'm not connected and I couldn't possibly write anywhere except in those tiny pockets. Um, and I'm really aware of those things like the... When I, you know, even five years ago, like I would never read even necessarily like a long-form article about something. If there was something I was interested in, I would order books and I wouldn't want to read a whole book about it, whereas now I've sort of become much more sort of resigned to the fact that I'll just know lots of small things about a lot of things and not go so deeply into any topic. But mm. I, I do think it has changed the way that I both read and write. Mm. Um, and that I do think as a society we probably will develop strategies to try and combat those things because to create anything really, um, really sort of deep thinking, you, you have to do the opposite. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. Um, Robert, I asked you whether you would like to read something today that maybe um, showed you something about yourself, something from mm -hmm. your fiction that showed you something about yourself that surprised you or, or something that, that you would like to share with us. And I was just wondering whether you'd like to... That's a I biography, though. I know. I know you asked me that. <laughs> but there Naughty. is something... There is <laughs> There is something at the very start of this biography which, uh, in a way, uh, draws in exactly what you're talking about oh, without it being. Uh, this is a book called Vera, Vera Vesovsky, whom Caroline worked with when Vera worked for the ABC. Vera uh, grew up as uh, is a victim of the Holocaust. Mm. She grew up in, uh, in Lvov, which at that time was in the Ukraine, uh, was in uh, Poland, is now in the U Ukraine. Um, most of the children of Lvov in what were called actions mm. were gathered up by the Nazis, um, one day five-year-olds, another day six-year-olds, another day seven-year-olds, gathered up by the Nazis and murdered, uh, taken to a special site where they were machine-gunned and they were murdered. Um, Vera managed to uh, survive the four years as living a feral life on the streets of Lvov. She became uh, brilliant at finding food that, that, that would just barely keep her alive. I'm talking about cockroaches and rats and I'm talking mm. uh, about rancid uh, potato peels. Now, when Vera asked me to write her story, because I met her up at Byron Bay at the Literary Festival, where, where Vera still lives, a most remarkable woman, an extraordinary woman. Um, and... Um, uh, when she asked me to write her story, um, she said, uh, uh, do it whatever way you like. It's my practice if I'm, if I'm writing, a, if I'm writing a, a, the story of somebody else to create a voice for that person and use the, that person's voice to tell a story. I never, I never uh, record, I never transcribe, I make notes. Then I create the, the voice on the paper uh, and I show, I said, this is the voice I conceive for you to tell your entire story. Uh, and, I show the, uh, and, and I show the subject, Vera, in this case. And she says, oh, Robert, this is me. This is my, this is my voice. This is exactly me. Actually, it's not. It's, it's a little bit different than, than Vera's real, real voice. But if you get it right... The, the subject is completely convinced that this is uh, their story. So the way in which I wanted to tell Vera's story <clears throat> was to put myself into it as well. I had, by this time I had written maybe four Holocaust stories I'd, uh, um, about other women, including, of course, 
the, the beautiful and wonderful Barbara Schwartz, whom you would know, Caroline, mm. who died only a couple of years ago, the, the mother of, uh, the wonderful mother of, of uh, Maury Schwartz, the founder of Black Ink. Um, so I, I'm putting, I've got Vera's voice re, uh, telling her story. Into the story I come, this is something that really happened. We were at a cafe in, uh, at the Prince of Wales in Fitzroy Street um, and I come, uh, I come into the story. The way in which I come in, you'll notice, depends on the devices of fiction. I think if you're going to write fiction, uh, going to write non-fiction, the best possible training you can have is to write fiction first. Hmm. And my, my, my uh, test for a book of, uh, of uh, non-fiction is, is it good enough to be fiction? Mm. Mm. Um, <laughs> and uh, so this was, the, this was the way I introduced myself into the story. I really was there. These things really happened. And yet you'll notice that I'm using the devices of fiction in order to convey um, uh, the, uh, the voice, what's happening in the mind... Of uh, of uh, Vera, Vera says. <coughs> Outside at a cafe in St Kilda, a new place at the back of the Prince of Wales, we're talking of murder. I light up a cigarette. Of course I do. That's why that's why Robert and I are outside. I'm the Robert, of course. But within ten seconds, the woman at the next table is acting out a drama of suffocation. She points at a child, a pretty girl of six, six or seven at the same time, holding a hand to her throat. I should be ashamed of myself. The mother wants me to understand. So, OK, I am ashamed of myself. But, madam, listen to me for a minute, one minute only. I am 80. Few pleasures are left to me. Nicotine, coffee, marijuana. Your child will survive. <laughs> Robert hunched over his notebook asks, but you had a sense of foreboding, because now he's referring back to her life in Lvov, mm. uh, before the Russians came. Uh, uh, yes, maybe, I'm not sure. She's in a bad mood this, on, on this particular day. Uh, Jews were being attacked in the streets, says, uh, Robert says. Your uncle was attacked. The waiter appears with my coffee and Robert's tea. He's very good looking. He too disapproves of my cigarette. I live in a world of disapproval. My friend Jenny rolls her eyes whenever I pull out a packet of drum and my papers. Others I know disapprove of my politics. When I was younger, my morals were an issue for some. Oh, but the greatest disapproval of all. That was in Poland. That was in Lvov. There, large numbers like me, were so disapproved of that we were murdered in large numbers. Robert promised me again, that's right, isn't it? Your uncle was attacked. Yes, Robert, my uncle was attacked. I don't know, this is her, her, her exasperation, you know. Yes, I, I told you already, your uncle was attacked. My uncle was attacked. Uh, I, don't know, uh, I don't want to speak of murder this morning. I don't know what, uh, what I want my, to, uh, to start with. I don't want my book to start with death and despair, nor to end with it. Imagine an epitaph that reads, Vera, she survived the Shoah. Better it should read, Vera, lust for life. Maybe also Vera, love music, books, philosophy. Also, very good sense of humour. And love not wisely, but too well, mostly. Something along those lines. <laughs> it needs work. Robert picks up my mood and backs off. Good for him. He lights a cigarette of his own, sips his tea and studies my features. You have, he says, 
the most beautiful green eyes I've ever seen. It's true. I do have beautiful eyes. <laughs> it's nice that he notices. Maybe he will notice a great many other things. And may he also discuss with me what sort of book this is to be. I don't think I'll enjoy starting at Livov, then leaping back and forth between catastrophe and triumph over all the years of my life, interiors, landscapes, follies, lovers, betrayals. Life stories hardly ever tell the truth about anyone. How can they? A life story of ten volumes is still a pricey. To record all of my thoughts from this Sunday morning alone, I would require 20 pages. Today I walked along Park Street with Robert, and every glance recalls something of St Kilda 50 years ago when I first came here from Poland. The human mind is like, well, what is it like? Like a chaotic archive, a million scraps of paper stored in heaps, with no system, no chronology, no index, nothing remotely like a catalogue, bills and bank statements living trick by jail, with love letters and somewhere in the midst of it all a petrified cheese sandwich forgotten years ago <laughs> after a single bite did I have a sense of foreboding how can I answer that Robert asked me do I have a sense of foreboding yes of course I did Jews are born with a sense of foreboding is this news is this the stuff <laughs> of literature uh, I could say Robert children as young as I were hanged by their neighbours in many Polish towns in my town and in my town Lwów Little Vienna, as it was known. Yes, yes, Robert, there was a great deal of foreboding. Mm. <laughs> just before I forget, because it is too tantalising a question, and I, I could just sort of get distracted, because there's so much to unpack there that also reverberates with you, Jesse. In writing the story of Vera, did you, at the time that you were gathering all the information from her extraordinary life, mm-hmm. did some reptilian part of your brain think, some of this is going to be useful for fiction when I want to create another character? Absolutely. Like, can you recycle the material <laughs> like that? Yes. yes. And wow. Vera became uh, one of the models of the, of the, the character of Hannah I thought in so, yeah. the, the bookshop of the Broken yeah. Hearted. Yeah. Uh, Hannah... Uh, so you uh, waste survived, nothing in this process. <laughs> <laughs> had uh, had uh, survived Auschwitz. Um, Baba Schwartz, has, yes. I use parts of, of her experience in, in the bookshop of the Broken Hearted too. And but I just wondered about the sort of ethics in a way of, you know, you undertake to write someone's life and they trust you with that and you, you know, we weren't going to talk about this because I wasn't really thinking of you as a bi- biographer in this particular session, but it just suddenly strikes me that here you are, you get Vera's story and it is for the purpose of writing a biography. You've entered into a contract with her. It is a relationship of trust. And then at the same time, there is that fiction writer's part of your brain that's thinking, mmm, material. <laughs> Yes, well, Caroline, ethics. <laughs> Let's not go there just yet, maybe. <laughs> I'll maybe leave you to, to ponder on that for a moment. Jesse, in, in your um, experience of writing memoir, you know, I think one of the myths that people have about memoir is that memoir is always a kind of raw dumping of everything and that you're kind of telling everything. Mm. But in fact... Um, there is a great deal of very judicious mm. editing. In fact, that's almost what the skill is: deciding exactly. what you're going to leave out, leave out, and yeah, what what you what the story is going to be. Yeah. And and I guess in in your case, you know, the the terrible organising principle that imposes itself mm. on staying is suicide. Yeah. 
uh, and you've got no choice in the fact that yeah. that is the defining theme of your memoir. Yes, but sometimes I think about like that because um, staying is about the death of my sister and my father from suicide in my adolescence. Mm. But um, and it doesn't have any. It doesn't have a lot. What I was trying to show partly is how monstrously isolating that circumstance was. Um, but really, I did have friendships that transcended that experience and that are long-lasting and that are still a big deal in my life. So I sometimes think that you, I could have written that book and then I could have written a book about friendship, for example, that would sit alongside that book and would be equally as true and equally as important, um, but they don't cross over in any way, in a sense. Um, so I do sort of think that when you write a memoir, you're just deciding that you're going to focus on a particular aspect of your life and you could write you know, almost a, an endless amount of them and they might and they might all cover exactly the same periods in time and actually have no, yeah. So in the case of staying then, um, you know, there are people around you who do help you back mm. into a kind of faith in life yes. that you don't succumb to despair. And as you say, obviously, friendship is a very important theme. But what did you consciously, in writing staying, leave out Oh, you, you leave out. So this is a 60,000-word book. I mean, there's so much left out. I mean, even simple things like my parents were really into travelling, so we were, always, um, we were always, you know, the book is set so, so intensely in the home place, but actually part of my parents' philosophy around parenting was to do international travel and to do it relatively regularly, and that's where they put all their money. So okay. um, that doesn't exist at all. Not at case. all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 but, I mean, you know, that would be another whole book. So mm. I just... Because I knew that I wanted it to be... Um, I, wanted, I didn't want it to be like one of those gigantic, rambling um, kind of sagas. I wanted it to be very specific in its area that it was covering. Mm. So, yeah, I was making a lot of choices around that. Mm -hmm. Now, just as I asked Robert, who... Didn't, didn't follow the brief at all, uh, <laughs> to read something from uh, fiction that would illustrate something about, you know, putting yourself in the work. I'm just wondering whether you would like to choose something and tell us about yeah. how that maybe t showed you something about yourself that you weren't expecting. Uh, well, I think that both of my novels came out of really disastrous love affairs and um, I think those kind of experiences often end you, you end up feeling like deeply confused about who you are um, and so this section that I'm reading is actually the first section I wrote and it was I guess me coming to terms with this, the hideous reality that I'd fallen in love which was something I really never wanted to do um, <laughs> You never wanted to fall in love? No <laughs> Jesse. <laughs> Well, it hasn't ended all that well for me. <laughs> okay, I'll start. All my life I'd heard about the randomness of love, coming at people sideways like a cyclone, wiping out life as they knew it. But my ears had never been sympathetic to love's secret calling. My heart had not fluttered with want or need. I'd placed no trust in that thing that ripped your roof off when you least expected it. But though I had turned my back on all that love promised, Still, love came raging in. I lay awake, looking back on the days since Hamish had washed off the bridge, trying to make sense of how it happened. It had started after the rain running. From then on, whenever he was in the room, my breathing had become shallow, my heart clattering around like a pigeon trapped indoors. 
Next, I'd found myself studying the back of his neck as though it was a great work of art. <laughs> Finally, I'd felt those awful surges of anguish when I'd pictured the other girls. All of a sudden, I was aware of this terrible force within me, this uncontainable feeling, and wondered how long it had been building. I wondered how much of myself I'd missed. I didn't know where to put all that misplaced emotion, where to funnel it, and so once blooming, that love lived on inside me. Trapped and corrosive, it began to eat away at me from within. Hamish didn't come and visit again, but my cheeks stayed hot, my heart tight and heavy as stone. There were times when I could hardly breathe. The days I didn't see him stretched on forever. I knew he would be gone soon, off, into, off to the next place, and gradually I became wordless, his rebuff filling me with an irrational grief. How could I have done it, fallen so hard for someone so unfixed? Slowly, I began to view myself with a kind of dis disdain. I took to disappearing with the dog he gave me on long walks down the bitumen road, boot-clad and sweltering, hoping I could stamp out my feelings. Hobbling along, I was desolate and unfathomable, even to myself. More disturbing, I could feel a pulse between my thighs that seemed to radiate upwards, making me burn. On my walks, I tried not to examine my feelings, tried not to analyse his every word, his every past look, but what else to fill my head with. I counted my short, hot breaths. I looked aside when the farmer's trucks passed me, not meeting any of their prying eyes. None of them were his, so I held my face away. I focused on the green swell of the mountains around me, but I was blinded, I was disabled. For the first time, I was truly lame. Mm. <laughs> um, you, you wrote in a, in a piece on your, on your blog that your fiction seems to say things about you that, you that even you didn't know. Yeah. And you compare that to posting a selfie mm. that unwittingly reveals your subconscious thoughts. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I find it so horrifying what fiction says about you that you don't know you're saying. <laughs> and so whenever I revisit the... I don't feel this with memoir, but I feel it so strongly with fiction. I feel so much more exposed. Um, so in my first book, there's... Um, I mean, there's a, it's, a, it's a story of a, a, a bloke who is just sort of living his life and then this girl crashes her car outside his... Uh, house and he, she's very troubled and she's very sort of broken and wounded and he takes her in and helps her and, um, and anyway, she gets taken away in the ambulance and he sort of thinks it's over but she keeps coming back to him to sort of be tended, I suppose. And in the book, she's this terribly kind of passive character. She's just, she's got nothing left and she just wants to be, like, and she's so incapacitated. I mean, she's got a broken arm and she's quite wounded that she needs to, like, he, she needs him to help her in the shower and mm. all this kind of stuff. And, um, and I was so, like, mortified and horrified by how deeply I might want to be tended that way, that I had written this whole book with this hopeless girl who was just, like, so broken and so... Um, incapacitated that she needed some random guy to like, you know, towel dry her. And I, I don't know. And it just, it, it made me so ashamed that I might fantasize about something like that. But this is so interesting because that's not where I thought the you in the book was. So there are no, two narrators know, yeah. of the book. Yeah. So there is a daughter. So this, yeah. this rather hopeless father has a daughter, a teenage yeah. daughter. And I and relate intensely to her as well. Ah. Um, and and so and the, the two female characters are quite different. So the, the 
The broken girl is almost like someone who's lost everything and she's got nothing left and she, it's only like the pulse of like her heartbeat in a sense that's keeping her here and he's propping her up entirely and he's not very, what's the word, he, he doesn't really have the skills to do that but he's giving her what he's got. And the teenage girl is his daughter, she's not even his daughter, she's just some girl he's sort of picked up along the way through marrying somebody and leaving them and... Um, and she's much more thoughtful and she's, I suppose, quite close to what I might have seen myself to be as a teenage girl. But she's also, uh, she doesn't really have anyone in her life that can guide her, um, which I also sort of related to in a sense that um, I really wanted my elders and my parents to give me some guidance and they just were not, that was not what they thought they were here for. Um, and, yeah, so I definitely relate to, relate to both of those females really strongly. I mean, I think the thing that we have to explain about the, um, the wounded <coughs> woman uh, who needs a lot of tending with the broken arm is that she is in a deep state of grief. She's mm. just lost mm. a baby. Yes. Uh, so she's in a very particular state of yes. grief. Yes. And, uh, you know, grief is obviously your go-to subject you're very very powerful writing about grief both in fiction and non-fiction and I'm wondering whether having experienced deep grief yourself Mm. for the reasons that we've touched on whether you think that it's more cathartic to write about grief in fiction or non-fiction I definitely think everything is more cathartic in fiction across the board I just think in non-fiction you are tied to the facts of your life and especially through rewriting and editing and all that sort of stuff, you end up going over and over and over things, which I don't think is necessarily a healthy way to deal with trauma. Like, it can be just sort of, um, what's the word, making those trauma lines stronger and Mm -hmm. stronger. Mm -hmm. Whereas in fiction, like, you know, in that, for example, um, that character has lost her baby and she's lost everything and she doesn't have anyone in the world, which is probably how I felt when I lost my dad. But, um, but... I could place that emotional feeling into a different context and it could be worked through in a different kind of way and all sorts of transformative possibilities were available to me that weren't actually available to me in my life. So it was so much more... And also even to inhabit that, when I remember talking to a friend about how disturbed I was by why I had to write such a passive female character and, and, she, and, he, and the friend said, you never got to be that helpless mm. like you, that wasn't available to you because your family was completely falling apart so you always had to be strong right. and you've been strong your whole life and maybe you just want a chance to be not helpless. strong yeah um and I thought that was so insightful yeah, yeah. I wish I'd said that <laughs> <laughs> Robert um just going back to the memoir I mean this is quite a long rewind for you because the boy in the green suit Um, won the Biography Award in 2004, so maybe Mm -hmm. this is a bit of an unfair question to ask you, but I was just wondering, dealing again with that misapprehension about memoir that, you know, you put everything into it, do you remember the the sort of organising principle that helped you to shape the material around this iconic image of, you know, this preposterous young boy with the green suit and the typewriter launching himself into the world, getting into an incredible series of scrapes, running out of money being thrown out of various countries for not having the right visas at the right borders, etc. What Do you have a sense, is there something you can tell us about what you left out in order to shape that material? Oh, um, I began to write the book when I, um, at a certain point when I felt 
competent to do so. There comes a point in a writer's life, I'm sure this has happened to you, Jesse, too, and I'm sure to you, Caroline, too, when you realise that you have passed a certain point of competence where you can, where you can uh, uh, write a page, two-page, ten-page, you can write a chapter, and you know you're not going to get to the end of those, those ten pages and think, uh, I've been wasting my time, I don't have the talent to do this. You reach a, you reach a point where you realise you do actually have the competence to write. And at a certain point in, um, uh, before I started writing The Boy in the Green Suit, um, I realised that I had the competence to tell this, to tell this story. Um, and so I set, to work, uh, uh, I, set, I set to work to tell it. And I found that chapter by chapter, because of the, uh, the influence of, uh, of the fiction in my life, the way in which I'd, in a way, sort of been tutored by writing fiction, mm. I found that the, the very devices that I needed in order to tell a non-fiction story, the, uh, uh, the, the, the trickiness and the crafts uh, that, that, that you need in order to write, uh, uh, to write um, uh, fiction were there for me at my disposal, part of the competence that I felt that I had then uh, to write, uh, uh, to write non-fiction. So you're using the fiction as an apprenticeship mm. for the non-fiction. Yes. This is where I've gone wrong, is I've written the memoir first. <laughs> I should not have done that. Well, <laughs> you think of, think of all the things you need to learn to do to, in, to, to write fiction. It's uh, the strategies and the structures that you need, the way in which you have to work very hard to engage the reader from the first mm. sentence. The, uh, and you, you can't have just, uh, you can't have mere information. Uh, which is sometimes, you know, a problem with writing non-fiction where you think information uh, stands in place of narrative drama. Mm -hmm. To write narrative drama, uh, the, best, the best preparation you can have is to learn all the devices for engagement that, uh, that you learn when you're writing fiction. I knew I'd done something wrong. Um, one of the things that you use, I think, particularly effectively in uh, The Boy in the Green Suit is tone. Uh, it's a voice that you use, which mm. is a tool of disguise mm. and detachment. And I think that you use it really to delicious effect in that book, in that you are poking fun at yourself. You do realise how absurd you are, how absurd your ideas and notions of the world are. And so obviously the distance of time, <laughs> looking back on that 16-year-old boy, gives you the perspective to say, look at this clown, look at the trouble he gets himself oh. into. That, that's actually something that I hadn't even thought of before. Oh. <laughs> but no, 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 it, it, it's really insightful because uh, what you're suggesting is that I needed to be old enough to realise quite how stupid I had been and in, in what way I had I been I did stupid. not say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, at, uh, at the age that I began uh, writing The Boy in the Green Suit, I, I, I don't, it was a piece of cake. It only took a year to write. Um, uh, at the, but I developed the type of sense of humour uh, had matured, and the sense of humour had mm. matured in such a way that I could look at myself and I could see what an absurd, absurd... Uh, child that I was at 16, <gasps> heading off in a green suit with a suitcase and Olivetti and 50 books well, to travel the world. And, and, you know, oh, there are some really, really 
outrageous moments in this, but there can be no more outrageous moment than the moment when you end up in a jail in... Are you in Iran or in Pakistan? Oh, in I can't Zah- even remember where you are. It's in Zahidan in the uh, Kerman Desert of, of Iran. I was put in jail for arriving at the, at the border with a... Uh, uh, with a, a visa which had expired months and months and months ago. I'd worked as an English teacher in uh, Shiraz um, uh, beforehand. I said I was a professor. <laughs> Must have seemed odd to them to think that this 17-year-old boy <laughs> <or something> like <laughs> <laughs> had, had, acquired, had acquired the status of a professor. But uh, when I was asked, they said, we need somebody to teach to our school, to our, to our kids. Uh, you can speak English. That was my... That was the, the credential that I had. I could uh, speak English. And he said, yes. And he said, you've been to university, of course. Uh, this is the uh, Iranian te- teacher who hired me. You've been to university, of course. Oh, yes, been to university for four or five years, university. Which would have meant that I had started university when I was about 11 or 12. Yeah. So uh, yes, it, 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 it did, re- did require me to um, uh, to recognise how, how stupid I was. You keep using that word, and that's not my word. I just want to remind you all that is not my word. It's not stupid. Um, Jesse, you know there is this device that we talk about a lot in terms of fiction, which is the unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. a voice that we uh, we know is telling us a story that we shouldn't entirely trust. And I'm just wondering whether you as a reader, never mind as a writer, whether you particularly enjoy that feeling that you get from reading prose in the voice of an unreliable narrator. Uh, I guess if it's stung well and for purpose, I think I probably do enjoy it. Is that something that you're interested in as a device, um, as a writer? I think that in the writing of, D- of Darkness on the Edge of Town, that I think Vin- Vincent is a bit of an unreliable mm. narrator, but I think um, who's sort of the main protagonist, but I think he's unreliable because he doesn't know himself. And so that's a whole particular thing. So the book is working on all these different levels because he's telling you what he thinks is his straight story, but he's so unaware of his own emotional life and his own sort of um, foibles and things that the reader can see that far more clearly than he can. And I think that creates a really lovely tension. And, um, and I enjoy it, I think. I, I think I enjoy it as a reader. But well, it's definitely you, very fun as a writer. It's yeah. a great device that you've used where, in fact, you, as you say, Vince doesn't know himself very well and he's a bit of a hopeless character. Mm, mm. And then the daughter, who's not fully his daughter, has a voice as well. Yes, which she can see him. Yeah, that's right. She can see him a lot more clearly. She's more clear-seeing as a, as a person, mm. I think, yeah. Mm. Um, and so that, sen- that, that leaves the reader with the ability to choose, in a way, whose reality yes. to believe. Yes, yeah. And I think there was a point in the writing of that book where... Um, it, where it seemed to me that he could be a much more unreliable relator than he, than he, than he was, where I wasn't sure if he was actually quite a horrible person mm-hmm. and that he might... Like, I was sort of toying with the concept that he might kind of entrap her mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, that it would take a much darker turn where you'd thought the whole book that he was, like, a guy who was pretty hopeless doing his best, but then you realise that he's actually not that guy at all. And I had to kind of really, toy, like, decide... But that was an interesting one because it was like as I was deciding whether he was actually trustworthy mm-hmm. and that was an act of faith as a human and, and so I had to really wrestle with myself and say, he is 
trying like he's trying so yeah um, just the way robert yeah. you know uses this word stupid which is not accurate i suppose the word that i would use about him is to me he came across as weak yes but he doesn't know that no no mm-hmm. yeah that's true yes well <laughs> but he's not evil no he's yeah. not he's not evil but just going back to that first thing that i said about you know he's a man who fixes broken things and your father was a psychiatrist yeah. so your father was someone who fixed broken people yes can you perhaps now with the benefit of hindsight and with having got the book the memoir out and visited this very painful very painful topic tell us perhaps a little bit about your father as a person was your father weak I do think so I mean I think I do think that if you make that choice it's a weak choice um I mean I know that people are in extraordinary pain and you can't possibly um, get inside that and know what it's like and know, you know, you can't be that person. But I do think that um, just throughout his life, he prioritised very strongly his own emotional um, needs at the cost of everybody around him. And I do think that's a weakness. Um, But but Jessie, is, is that weak to have such a powerful ego that you uh, make uh, uh, your, your own needs your, your priority? Um, you have to be it, weak it to depends. do that. I, I, feel like, I feel like it requires strength. Well, maybe not for everybody, but for someone with such a big ego. Yeah. It requires strength to um, in, inhibit the need to... Um, to, for your for your the things that you want to sort of override everybody else's. There's a selfishness, I yeah. think. Selfishness, but, you, but unless you're able to do that, you wouldn't have the ego. The ego, yeah, maybe. the egotism is 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 egocentricity, uh, is is what allows you to uh, ride roughshod over the over the needs and priorities of mm. other people. And that's that's one that's of the sort of paradoxes yes, of, yeah. of human nature. Yeah. Um, Robert, one of the things that Joyful has in common with the bookshop of, of The Broken Hearted is uh, a refugee story that is embedded in both novels. And I was wondering whether you could talk about refugees and about their importance in your life, in the work that you've done in telling other people's stories, in your experience of refugees. Don't tell me that you haven't thought about this. Don't. <laughs> I have thought about this, Caroline. <laughs> Good. Um, I was introduced in um, in uh, 2006 to a uh, a remarkable uh, Afghani refugee by the name of Najaf Mazari, uh, and uh, Najaf had come to Australia in two th- in the year 2000 before the Tampa thing. Uh, he was allowed to stay. He, he came from Afghanistan, had to fly, flee Afghanistan because mm-hmm. he was in danger of being murdered. Uh, and the evidence of, uh, of, the, of the, the likelihood of him being murdered was overwhelming. He came from the Hazara mm. uh, minority. The Taliban, uh, who had swept up through Afghanistan and for the first time ever had... Uh, controlled almost the entire country of Afghanistan. It had rarely been done by the one one fought political one military Group, force. One faction. Mm. Yeah, um, they kept, they finally came to the to the corner of uh, Afghanistan where Najaf lived, uh, the north uh, the northwest, uh, and uh, where the Hazara people lived. 
and they were defeated for the first time. The Taliban suffered their first defeat. The, the, the Taliban were the most extraordinary guerrilla force the world has ever seen. There had never been anybody like them. And yet they were defeated by the Hazara. They came back in overwhelming numbers and murdered and massacred many, many Hazara, particularly Hazara young men, because the, the young men are the ones who fight back, uh, who, are, who are likely to get a weapon and, uh, and, um, come out and, and oppose you. So they murdered many, many young men of uh, Najaf's age. Najaf managed to escape. All of his family got, them, got, them, got their money together. Every single penny they could find, an extended family of 50 people, every single penny they could find, they paid a people smuggler to get him out of Afghanistan. Just one man. Because if one person could live, let it be Najaf. He was clever, he was resourceful, and he was male, and he was uh, very likely to be able to sort of defend for, defend for himself in situations where a, a woman wouldn't be able to. He managed to reach Australia, and... Uh, in Australia, after a certain period of, of terrible hardship, he managed to, to, to thrive. He had been captured by the Taliban and terribly tortured before he escaped in Afghanistan. Um, so having reached Australia, with, he, he believed he had this story to tell. He wanted somebody to tell it. He met one writer after another writer, uh, a publisher, Cathy Lewis. You will know Cathy Lewis from, uh, from uh, Wildingo Press. Cathy mm -hmm. um, Lewis introduced, uh, came to know him, introduced him to one writer, to another writer, to another writer. And in each case he said, uh, maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> um, that he wasn't sure. Uh, when he met me, he, he felt nothing that, that I did was, uh, was, me was meant to sort of... Uh, uh, seduce him in his, in his good opinion. Um, I just I, I just told him the way in which I would tell a story and a little bit about my life. And um, uh, uh, after listening to me for 20 minutes and staring at me intently with his black eyes, I thought, Jesus Christ, what have I done? I have in some way insulted him, and uh, and, and he's going to become very angry. But instead of that, he reached out his hand across the table and put it on mine, and he said, Robert, you're the one. <laughs> and um, he allowed me to write his story, his story of, his, of a, 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 an, Af an Afghani refugee. It became the, um, uh, the rug maker of Mazari Sharif, because Najaf was a rug maker. Mm -hmm. And people who had read the rug maker of Mazari Sharif, it did sort of fairly well, uh, the rug maker of Mazari Sharif. Uh, it was published in America as well as in, in England. Um, and people got read it and they read his whole story. They sent me emails saying, this guy Najaf Mazari, you think he suffered? Wait till you hear my story. <laughs> <laughs> so I got lots and lots of offers to, to write uh, stories about refugees. And in a number of cases I have. So you have embedded sort of refugee stories in two of your novels. So obviously mm. these stories are very potent and yes, powerful it's, for it's you. It's like meeting, uh, and, and, and of course it's like meeting Baba, Baba Schwartz and Vera, and, and Vera, of mm. course, and, and uh, uh, Diana Khan, whose story I'm writing at the moment, another Holocaust survivor, uh, was very influential in the Australian fashion scene. One, one well, now it's really interesting yeah. that you mentioned fashion because this is something that I wanted to ask you about. It seems to me that unlike a lot of, I'm going to make a really ridiculous sweeping statement now, but a lot of Australian men who are writers are not that interested in clothes. So there we are. That's the sweeping statement. Joyful. Joyful is absolutely steeped in the world of fashion. 
mm-hmm. and a kind of glamour and elegance that is very sort of European. And again, I come back to your mother leaving you in that very stylish oh, red coat. Oh, don't do that thing. <laughs> don't, don't do it. <laughs> so I'm interested in what it is about fashion that you find seductive, appealing, oh, mysterious. Uh, in it, Joyful, I wanted somebody who was... Uh, capable of enjoying the astonishing, transporting beauty of a woman beautifully dressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, a man beautifully dressed, of course, he, he thought, he said uh, to see a man beautifully dressed was like looking at a painting and which you regard, you, you realise the, the astonishing skill that's involved in it, but it doesn't move you. Mm-hmm. He, he was... He was attracted to women beautifully dressed, and he wanted to do the dressing. He provided the clothing for them, some of the antique clothing, clothing from all over the world, uh, beautiful dresses. He he didn't see them naked. He left them in a room with every possible accoutrement that they they would need to make themselves beautiful, and uh, they dressed themselves, and then he would ask them to walk. Could you walk from this side of the room to that side of the room? Could you stop for a minute and turn? Could you sit down? Could you put your head on your, ha- on your hand just like that? The beauty that moved him was um, uh, the beauty of women beautifully dressed in beautiful motion. Where does he that had come no from in you? Never mind the them. character. Where does that come from in you? That interest in that, that idea, that spark of an idea of a man who is aroused. There's a kind of eroticism yeah. there in an otherwise sort of sexless arrangement. We won't go into that because yeah. it's too complicated. But the eroticism in, in Leon's life yeah. comes from watching a woman move across yeah. a room wearing a piece of couture. Because it's beauty. It's beauty that the, the, the eroticism that he finds is, is the eroticism of beauty. And he can't, he can't imagine uh, uh, anything more beautiful than a beautiful woman beautifully dressed. Is that you? Maybe. I think it is you Um, there's a kind of um, we're talking about eroticism we're talking about seduction and the way that Robert kind of displaces that into fashion Um, Jesse and I'm not going to suggest for a moment that you do that but I was wondering whether you could talk for a moment about how you go about writing about sex because in um, Darkness on the Edge of Town, there is a very potent sense of an adolescent kind of feeling their way towards towards their own sort of sexual mm. awareness. Well, and in deep water as well. I mean, that's... Yes, made, yeah. yes, true. Yes. Um, how do I go about writing about it? Yeah. I, I have this technique... Um, which is that I like to believe, and it was so possible to do this in a wholehearted way with my first book when I had never been published, that I am having a a secret conversation with my deepest self and that no one ever will have any... No no one ever will read it. Um, (laughs) And... Um, and when I do that, I tend to be drawn to that sort of area, which is, I suppose, an area I find really confusing, like the... um, how... I suppose a kind of yearning for what you perceive sexual, I don't know, sexuality to be like and what it actually, you know, sort of butting up against what it actually is like, especially for young people and Mm. especially for young women. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, so I guess it's something I like to explore, but the only, the only way that I can do it is through a belief that it's no one will know. Yeah. <laughs> Horrific, <laughs> yeah. What, what was that, Jessie, you just said? I, I, I missed it. The only way you could... <laughs> do it is by just believing that no one will read it. Oh yeah. <laughs> don't don't you feel though that as soon as you write anything on a piece of paper, no, it's published? I don't, and I think that's because of the way that I lived in such an mm. isolated way, where I lived for so long without any readers in my life, and without any access to literary culture, and uh-huh. without any awareness that there was a world of readers. Mm. So I was so isolated in a true sense, that I believed that no one would ever read anything that I wrote. I mean, that's the great difference between you, is you set off on that absurd yes, ad- a nice adventure... Yes, and I stayed forever. ...wanting yeah. to be a writer, and Jessie was told by somebody else that she was a writer. Ah, oh, yes, so, of course, she was... So that's... She was, she was, uh, you, you were actually told that you, that you were a writer. Yeah. Yes. And so now you'll write for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and now it's a lot harder to find that place where I believe that no one will ever read it. So I don't even know how that's going to work from now on. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. We've got about mm, ten minutes left in terms of um, this session. So if you've got questions about process or about your own work, that you know, you're thinking about these ideas, if there's something about... You don't have to have read Robert or Jesse's books to ask a question, but you know, feel free now. Now is the time, and we will come to you with a microphone. Maybe I've got yeah. a little bit more light. Okay, so we can see. You. So, who's going to ask the first question? Yes. Um, I'd just like to ask Jesse how, if you didn't believe you were a writer, how did how did you get published with your first? Um, did everybody hear that? Yeah, good. Okay. So for me, it was a strange and slow process. Um, I started writing as part of a therapeutic relationship and um, my therapist, I didn't share, she just suggested I write, but I didn't share my writing with her for a long time. I didn't tell anybody in my world that I wrote. Um, And then um, when I finally did share it with her, she, she said she thought I was a writer and I had not considered that Um, and then very slowly over time I started to share small snippets of things that I was writing with my family and with my friends and um, just got sort of I suppose a little more confident a little more confident and then I started to submit to um, some things around the place especially things that were like writing residencies or you know mentorships or things like that Um, and I got accepted to those sort of things and you know just over time, I suppose I got more and more used to the idea and I got more and more confident about submitting and I got closer to, I don't know, the, the, the people who control those. Like, I mean, you know, I, I submitted... One of the things that I got was a, was a residential mentorship with an editor from HarperCollins and that was sort of my, my foot in the door to being published by them. But I wasn't published by them with the book that I was working on. It was with, you know, so by the time I actually got picked up, I had two books that I'd already written and never really shared. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll ask this question to Robert. You talk about finding the voice of somebody that you're writing a book in collaboration with. Can you break that down a little bit on, on how it is that you isolate the features or, or yeah, how do you find somebody's well, voice? Well, I write the book after um, the book, uh, like, for, for instance, let me see, where is it? 
uh, My Life as a Traitor, uh, which was about a young Iranian woman, Zara Garamani, who was uh, imprisoned in Iran in, 2000, in 1999 and held in Evan prison, terribly tortured and terribly abused. Um, and I went to meet her in... Uh, I, I went to, to Iran... Um, where I'd been in, myself in prison years, and years, years earlier. <laughs> Went back to Iran to write some articles for the Financial uh, Times, uh, Financial Review. And um, I met this young woman who was, looked haunted and she was following me on the other side of the street for a short time. Um, and then finally she came... I, was, I had a notebook and I was making notes up near, uh, up near Tehran University. Uh, and she came, uh, she came across to me with this haunted look on her face and said, are you a writer? And I said, yes, I am a writer. And he said, she said, I have a story. And we went to a park, in, a secluded park in the centre of Tehran, right to the very, very corner, sat under a tree, and over two hours she told me this extraordinary story. Later, I helped her to come to Australia um, as, a, as a student and when she came as a student she stayed uh, she asked for political asylum and stayed um, and uh, she wanted me to, to tell her story I interviewed her maybe 50 times I listened to the cadence of her voice I made decisions about the things that she would say and that she wouldn't say I uh, the, the fashioning of the voice was one that had to suit her completely so that when people saw her, a, a picture of Zara, uh, for instance, they would think, this voice could come from this, from this young woman. Um, so it's uh, the development of... A, uh, it's uh, the fashioning of, of the voice uh, is um, uh, a matter of listening really carefully, getting the cadence right, and, uh, and then beginning to fashion the, the, the voice on the stage, show the, the first chapter to the, to the uh, subject, and nearly always they will say, if you've worked on it hard and you've used all your craft and all your art uh, to create the voice, they will read it and they, they, will, they will say, yes, this is, this is my voice, this is me. I want this story told in this voice. It's extraordinary to think that... You, is, it, is it the case with each of the times that you've done that that you have not recorded the person? No, I never, re- I, I never record. I just make notes and I never transcribe. Uh, that is a very particular kind mm. of very intense, very active listening that you're mm. doing. That's yes, a, you do. a skill like you, you when, do when a therapist listen is carefully. listening. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I were to go, go back to the hotel now and write about Caroline and Jessie... I'd remember everything. I know. It's oh. terrifying. <laughs> really scary. Is there another question from the audience? Do we have one? Yeah. Robert, um, given, given that you take so much care on, on the voice of the, the ghost books that you're doing yes what about when it comes to your fiction do you then do you take as much care in creating the voice of somebody like tom hope or, or oh whoever? hell yes yes that's very important it's uh, uh as you're working away on creating the voice of a fictional character um uh, I can't sort of write a chapter and show it to the fictional character and get his endorsement or her <laughs> endorsement. Uh, I have to get it right on the page. And 
a part of every writer's craft, Jesse's and Caroline's, part of our craft and part of, uh, of uh, what we rely on is our ear, listening mm. to, the, to the way in which people speak mm. and, the, uh, uh, and the, the, um, uh, the, particular, the particular idioms that you, that, that, that you pick up from various groups of people. You remember, remember them all. One of the really good things, one of the things that make it possible for you to write, for anybody to write, is to remember. Mm. You've, got to, you've got to have a good memory to, to be able to write. Mm. Mm. Yeah, just um, to, to finish up then, since we've just got a, a minute, is there somebody else with another we question who's desperate? Now. Yes, let's... Okay, one, one last question. This is, relates to a, a really old book by Hal Porter called Watcher in the Cast, Cast Iron Balcony. And in that book, he's writing about himself, but he's watching himself at the same time. Yes. So, so I'm wondering how much that writing self in the novel is watching yourself and discovering yourself and how it changes you as you go. Um. Well, it, my memoir was written over a really long time period too, like opposite to you, like uh-huh. more like 15 years. Um, 15 years? Yes. <laughs> and so um, it, it really was interesting to watch. Like when I first started revisiting the first draft that I had written, it was like I was, um, I was reading fiction. It was like I was mm-hmm. reading, a, yeah. a, you know, the past self aspect of what I was dealing with yeah. was, um, was really startling. And so when I was trying to rewrite it and trying... I was, I was always trying to, um, to be generous to the girl that I had been and to accept... Because I didn't want to write a memoir that, that kept going. I wanted the memoir to sort of stop in the place that it had always stopped, which was when I was about 26 and I'm now 41. So... So I didn't. 41? Yeah. Get so, the hell out of here. You're not 41. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to sort of. Um, I wanted to. I wanted to. You know, yeah, to. to I knew that I knew a lot more about myself than I did mm. when I wrote that first draft, mm. but, I, but I wanted to. Um, allow that girl to stand and allow how little she knew about herself to stand, in a sense. So I was kind of really cautious about bringing too much of that future vision in on her. Um, there is a little bit, but there's not that. There's not as much as there sort of could be uh-huh. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, but it is an interesting idea, isn't it, that you could read something that you'd written about yourself from 10, 15 years ago, yes. and you actually are almost yeah. unrecognisable in a lot of ways. Yes, 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 I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you found this session as um, fascinating as these two writers have in terms of actually understanding what it is they're doing, <laughs> what it is they're writing about. Um, I have to say that I'm completely bamboozled by many of the things that both of them have said. Will you please join me in thanking Robert and Jesse? Thank you.